Hey guys, and welcome back to the Sweaty Palms podcast. I just wanted to apologize for my month-long hiatus of not posting anything. I was uh, visiting, well actually, I guess I should back up a little bit. I've had a lot of things going on the past couple months. I graduated in May from the University of Georgia, so now I'm officially a college graduate, which is exciting and also kind of terrifying. (laughs) And then um, I was in Europe visiting my family for about a month over the summer. So, But I'm back now and ready to start posting again, so thank you guys so much for tuning back in and sticking with me. Uh, This week's episode, I interviewed Dylan Keel. He's a guitar repairman and luthier who owns classic city vintage guitars here in Athens Georgia and I'd honestly call him a guitar historian he's been in the business for a while now and knows his craft really well and you can just tell by the way he he talks in this episode we talk about his background how he got into the business makes and models that he's worked on why he moved to Athens cool projects he's got going on and a lot more so if you want to learn more about guitar culture too you should keep an eye out for his podcast coming out called only frets and if you're in athens you should definitely stop by his store he's a really kind person and just fun to talk to so even if you just want to go in and like look around and you know chat with him he's definitely a great person to do that with. Also check out his website. It's classiccityvintageguitars.com and follow him on his Instagram at classiccityvintageguitars and keelcraft guitars. All the links to his socials and website will be in the description below. Also wanted to mention that this episode was recorded back in June before I left for Europe. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the next episode of the Sweaty Palms podcast. Sweaty Palms is a music industry podcast where each week I interview professionals to work within the industry. This week's guest is Dylan Keel, owner of Classic City Vintage Guitars here in Athens, Georgia. It's a full-service guitar repair and vintage sales shop. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Dylan. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Yay, it's a pleasure to have you. I've been really excited because I've told Dylan earlier that I've been following his Instagram page for a really long time, and I just went into the shop yesterday to meet him officially, and he gave me the full tour and kind of told me about how long he's been doing this, um, and it was just really cool, and he's a really cool guy, so I'm super excited for this episode. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) You know, I'm really proud of the shop. It's a really... Um, cool space. There's not a lot of pretense on the outside. So when you walk in, it does kind of have this, this awe, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of comes over people who are interested in guitars or just the the process or the craftsmanship when they walk through the shop. So really appreciate it. I usually always ask my guests about their background, where they grew up. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that if you'd like to share. Yeah. So, you know, as far as what I do and it being so personal to me, the process of getting here started very young for me. My parents were both songwriters in Nashville. In the early 80s, they had, you know, quite a few songs that were cut by the uh, outlaw Nashville country, you know, Mm -hmm. singers of the day, like Hank Williams Jr. and David Allen Coe. They were kind of riding this wave of, Mm -hmm. you know, writing songs and doing pretty well. In 83, the year that I was born, they were down at my grandmother's house for Christmas in Louisiana. There was a car accident. My mother was run over mm, and um, and injured very badly. She was sent to Shepherd Spinal Center here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so she was a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. And we lived in Atlanta, outside of Atlanta in Riverdale. My dad went back to Nashville and continued his solo career and writing songs. And my mom and I lived in an apartment in Riverdale. So I lived there with her until I was about 12 years old. And I started getting into trouble and moved <laughs> up to um, live in North Tennessee. So, yeah, I've been in California for the last 10 years, and I'm, I'm finally back in Georgia. But it's kind of funny because I am, you know, from the South. And I've always said that I'm from Atlanta because mm-hmm. that's, that's where my home was, you know, always from, from the beginning. Well, I didn't know that was your story. I'm really sorry to hear about your mom. I'm sure that was really hard to deal with. But that's really cool, though, that you went to California and then you came back to your roots. I feel like a lot of people end up doing that. You go off and travel and then when it's time to come home you come home sure what made you decide to end up coming to Athens if you're from Atlanta yeah so um that's another like kind of long involved story I went to um college in Kentucky at Murray mm-hmm. State and my mother passed away my sophomore year of college and so I decided to fly to Washington and hitchhike and hike to mm-hmm. 
LA and then on to Colorado mm-hmm. and then home, you know, home to Kentucky. And when I got back, I had spent a lot of time in California, Northern California, and just all over. And a lot of time thinking, you know, your your perspective changes completely when something like that happens. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got back and I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to be back in the same kind of life that I'd always been after experiencing so much. So I applied for a transfer and um, went to Humboldt State uh, in Northern California for a semester and ended up staying for 10 years. Oh, wow. And, um, <laughs> and so I, I've been out there for about 10 years. I met my then girlfriend, now wife. We got married in 2018 and she finished her master's degree that same year. And we had just kind of been looking for the next step. And I had been slowly kind of building this career. I'd worked at a guitar factory for a while and had started a guitar repair shop in my house and was doing okay. I was doing a lot of repair and buying and selling a lot of guitars online. And I would buy them in bad shape and fix them up and then resell them. So a luthier job for a position managing a guitar repair shop here in Athens came up in 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, It was January first week of January 2020. And so I applied. I flew out. I had actually never been to Athens before. Oh, wow. Even even being in North Georgia for most of my young life and was offered the position. And so I flew back to Northern California and told my wife, I got the job. You know, this is it. We can do it if we want. We can, you know, get out of Northern California. We're going to we're going to go to Georgia and buy a house for $150,000. Right. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so we did it. We um, we started kind of breaking down my repair shop and our house that we had been in. We rented there in Northern California and kind of dissolving my business, letting my clients know. She put in for a transfer because there was an office in Duluth for mm-hmm. her, her job. So she put in for a transfer and... I was supposed to be here April 1st, mm-hmm. which I was, but by the time we got here April 1st, the whole country had shut down and it was full on, you know, outbreak mm-hmm. level pandemic. So yeah, that's how I got here. That's a, I, <laughs> I love your story. You're such a cool, interesting guy. You've been through so much and, and done so many things and I love hearing people's backgrounds. So I always ask yeah. that question first. Yeah. I think it's really nice for, for the viewers to hear yeah. what you came from and what you've been through and where you are now. It's always um, a funny thing for me to go into it because it's like, oh man, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a second. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's, you know, I really think that like yourself, like who you are is kind of the sum of your experiences, you Definitely. know, so it's hard to just take a snippet of, of one thing and say, this is, this is how I got here. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, when I think about my life and I think about my experiences and how it got me where I am today, I think about everything. You know, right. It's hard to just kind of compartmentalize anything. Mm-hmm. What is your musical background? And I'm guessing maybe it might've started with a guitar. It did. My dad being a singer songwriter mm-hmm. in Nashville, when I would go visit, he would always be going to the studio to cut a song or we would be going to somebody's house. You know, my godfathers and uncle friends of mm-hmm. my dad's were people that were in country bands and guitar mm-hmm. players. And so it seemed like everywhere I, I was, there were always guitars you know, in every room always. But as a kid, for me, I was I was really into to punk rock and mm-hmm. heavy metal and like so I was a huge Nirvana fan, okay. huge Nirvana fan. I was the kid that had, you know, at like 10 years old, I had like 50 Nirvana posters on my wall. You know? <laughs> and um, I, um, I got my first guitar when I was about 10 or 11, and it was a red Samick Stratocaster. Mm-hmm. And I loved having a guitar, but I, I never loved the color. Mm-hmm. And, and my, all my customers know, and all my clients and friends know that I, I, I don't like red guitars, oh, okay. but I seem in the shop to always have several red guitars because <laughs> they seem to gravitate towards me. That's funny. Um, but that's how I got into guitar. You know, I, um, I got a guitar and I would, I would just hammer out power chords mm-hmm. and I never became a, a virtuoso guitar player. I, I really enjoyed just the energy of, of rock and roll, you mm-hmm. know, and that raw kind of power of feeling the amplifier hitting you in the chest and vibrating mm-hmm. everything in your body. It's just such a great, great release and, and feel. And so it always stuck with me and resonated with me. I started my acoustic journey five years ago and I play on and off. But my roommate got a, an electric guitar and I finally got to experience what you're describing. And I was like, wow, I should have gotten one of these <laughs> a long time ago. I know. To transition to talking about 
Classic City Vintage Guitars. So you opened in September officially of 2021 Mm -hmm. and you moved here in 2020. Mm -hmm. What's it been like having the shop open and and meeting all these people? Yeah, it's been great. It's been amazing. The community is very supportive. I love my clients and I love the energy that the shop has as a meeting place. You know, you never know when you're going to come in and your friend's going to be there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then the, all of a sudden there's like this reunion or something, you know, that people have. And it's great to see. And I'm, I'm right there in the middle of the room. So I'm just kind of behind the scenes of it all. I'm, I'm kind of watching and, and mm-hmm. you know, experiencing it, uh, you know, as they are. I ran the repair shop that I came here to manage during the pandemic. As things opened back up, I realized that that shop wasn't the right fit for me. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking for a new space. And one day on Craigslist, I saw the tree room space mm-hmm. coming up. And there was just this picture of that big brick facade. And I was like, what is this? So mm-hmm. I went and checked it out. And of course, when you walk in, it's like you're walking into some sort of botanical garden, you know. And there's, there's brick and spray paint and trees. And at the time, there were koi fish. And it's really wild to walk in. So I checked it out and I assumed that it was the the space behind the tree room. But it was actually the space next door. I walked into the space next door, which was an alteration shop at the time, and peeked my head in and said, hey, is is there a space around here for rent? And they told me that that was a space. And so I waited for my landlord, who's Doug Boer, who's also a very interesting guy. But he, um, he gave me the tour. The, the woman who owned the alteration shop was living upstairs. The bottom level where my showroom is now was where they had sewing tables. The back, they had dresses. And so I kind of, in my head, just saw it instantly. You know, it was like this kind of cosmic feeling of like, oh, my God, this is the space. There's 16-foot mm-hmm. brick wall from the 1800s and tall Whoa. ceilings and... Um, the upstairs room and then the back room with all the light was the perfect wood shop and mm-hmm. it's quiet. For me, it's it's been kind of kind of a an actualization where I've I've had everything that I need in this one space mm-hmm. to do everything I've always wanted to do. That's one of the coolest locations in Athens. Like I grew up here till the time I was two until twelve. My mom would take me to that area all mm-hmm. the time because there's a aerial studio. Mm-hmm. And so when I put your location in Google Maps, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been there so many times. Sure. And it's right by the train tracks. And yeah, it just you're in like the perfect place yeah. and right next to the tree room. Yeah, and it's great because there's not like downtown foot traffic, but yeah. there is foot traffic, and it's not um, really out in the open, but mm-hmm. people know where it's at. And I really love the community over there. There is a gift horse studio. There is a canopy. Mm-hmm. There is a sweet spot a coffee shop. There is mm-hmm. pink goblin tattoo and piercing. And then my neighbor Jay next door who manages pink goblin. Everybody just is, is very cool and, and young entrepreneurs and, and just <laughs> doing it, you know, and doing what they want to be doing. And it's really a good kind of place to, to be a small business owner. Definitely. I'm really proud to be there. Do you travel around to find some of your guitars that you sell or do mostly people approach you and bring their guitars to you? Yeah, so there are uh, guitar safaris where I will locate a guitar and I will have to go to it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's not what I expected or sometimes it's better. And so I I use kind of online marketplaces quite a bit to find things. I use word of mouth. People do contact me with guitars every now and then and I'll, I'll buy them. I've bought some really cool pieces lately that have walked in the shop that have, you know, you really know, never know what's going to come in. Mm-hmm. I bought a, um early Harmony guitar from about 1905. Oh, wow. That has been repaired. It was repaired in Athens, Georgia mm-hmm. in 19, I think 1917 and 1920. And the guy who, who repaired it made labels that said he repaired them and it mm-hmm. had his name, J.D. Wages. That's cool. It's, so it says, repaired by J.D. Wages. 1917 Athens Georgia for the price of four dollars and so of course you know I got interested and uh, looked on graves.com and tracked down JD wages who Mm -hmm. is over in the Oconee Cemetery Mm -hmm. and uh, took some pictures of the guitar leaned up against his his uh, gravestone which is just totally interesting you know because you know you just never have that opportunity and it's very cool to to see, like, he was probably the first guitar repair person in Athens. That's right? insane. Yeah. Also, you can see inflation, $4 versus what it would oh, be now. of course. <laughs> yeah, I charge way more than that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I um, 
I travel quite a bit for guitars. Mm -hmm. um, I try not to buy things in the area because, you know, it, I am a retail shop when mm -hmm. it comes down to it and a repair shop. But, you know, I think it's kind of, it's a bad look to, to buy a guitar for less expensive mm -hmm. online and be the first one to get to it when 10 people were behind it and they come in the shop and see that I've right. you know, marked it up. Regardless of what repairs I've had to do, you know, it's just kind of, I saw this thing for 400 bucks. You mm -hmm. know, so. so are there specific places that you go to that are out of state or places that you continually like to get guitars from? Not really. You know, pawn shops are picked clean pretty much, mm -hmm. you know, these days. You don't really see much there. The online marketplaces like Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace have become kind of the new place that you can find scores okay. um, or family guitars that have that have not been worked on. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, I'm you know being a repair shop and not having you know a large amount of money to invest in high quality vintage guitars that are pristine. Most of the times, I'm looking for acoustic guitars that need neck resets, which is about a $500 job. Mm -hmm. So if I find a guitar that's worth a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars but it needs a neck reset and i can get it much cheaper and then sell it for that markup then my sweat equity is what kind of is where i can make a little bit of money and survive as a retail shop mm -hmm. um 90 percent of the shop's income though is based on local repair and repair that i do from outside of the area my dad actually this is a question that he formulated because he he had this guitar but i had to ask you it so I know that the relationship with one's instrument can be quite important for a musician. My dad, who's now in his late 50s, actually sold his beloved 12-string limited edition Roy McGune 360 Rickenbacker in 1991 in order to help finance his move overseas with my mother. After more than 30 years, he still remembers that guitar and wishes he still had it. Does it happen that sometimes people bring in their guitars to you and you can see how heartbroken they are that they have to sell it? You know, I, first I will say that, yeah, the people's love and relationship with their instruments is very personal. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I enjoy about instruments because they are, um, they're artifacts of, of the musician's life. They mm -hmm. are something that they either, you know, have owned for a long time. A lot of times it came from their grandfather or their father or, um, so it's, it's deeply personal. Mm -hmm. And so... That's why I really value my relationship with my clients and my relationship with the instrument because, you know, if you do a bad job, then you can really not only dam damage the relationship, but you can really hurt someone, mm -hmm. you know. And um, I've worked with a lot of clients who have had instruments poorly worked on, and they don't take it lightly. Yeah. Know? That shit hurts, you know. Mm -hmm. And not being able to fix it themselves or trust someone to take it to again, like someone else, it makes it very difficult for them. Like now they are left with this thing they don't know what to do with. Mm -hmm. So I do take a lot of care and time when I'm working with someone to describe what I'm doing, to maybe show them examples of my work or um, show them the process to give them the confidence in my handling and care of their instrument. And that's really important to me because people worry and as far as your dad's guitar, what I would say is, you know, he financed something that was very important to him, and mm -hmm. that's hard, but there are more out there. He mm -hmm. can get another one. And now with his grown-up money, he can <laughs> probably afford one more, maybe, hopefully, yeah. you know, and, and it's less, less of a relic, you know. I mean, they're more expensive now, of course, mm -hmm. but it got him to where he wanted to be, and that's that's another thing that's important to remember is, these guitars, they're kind of, sometimes they're considered like these uh, priceless relics mm -hmm. that, you know, can't be ever found again, you know, but you mm -hmm. can find them. They're out there. They, they were mass produced. Mm -hmm. It was a long time ago, but, you know, you can find another one. And um, if you're, if you're pining over it, uh, Zoe's dad, <laughs> go get it. <laughs> oh, go, I know, yeah. go look on Reverb, find one. It's worth the money. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about you know, don't worry about it. Mm. Rickenbackers are very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, but vintage guitars have gotten really expensive. So I'm sure the hardest thing for him is that he sold it for probably a third of what it's going for now. I'll have to ask him what color it was because now I'm curious. Hopefully it wasn't red. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have, or did you have a guitar that is particularly meaningful to you? 
I still have the second guitar that I got, oh. which is a, um, a silver Epiphone Stratocaster mm-hmm. um, from the late 80s. I have that. Yeah. I have the first expensive guitar that I bought myself was a, a Martin 0015 Mahogany mm-hmm. that I bought in a pawn shop and strapped it to the back of my motorcycle and rode it home. <laughs> and I haven't sold it. And I've probably sold, you know, two or 300 guitars in the last 10 years since I got it. And so I've kept those two. And um, there are several that I have that are kind of lifers for me. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because as a guitar repair person, if I find them in a bad state and I, I love them and I want to keep them, I keep them in the bad state. Oh, really? Because, because it's my, my work and my business. You know, as soon as I, like, fix up that, <laughs> for example, that 1920s K Deluxe that mm-hmm. I found for $40 on Craigslist, still in the original case, and just, like, oh. have loved it and carried it around for years. I'll never sell it, but I know as soon as I fix it up, I'll be like, oh, God, you know, my inventory's low. Yeah. Um, I also recently got a Kalamazoo KG-11, first year in 1933. Wow. And I've kept that in bad shape, too. You know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have a bridge on it. It needs a neck reset. It's beautiful. It's got a very dark burst. It was, Kalamazoo was kind of the um, the Gibson Off brand, Mm -hmm. you know. And they're they're really sought after, you know, um, mm-hmm. but I got it for, from a, from one of my favorite clients and it was a, a trade deal and oh, he nice. knew I loved it. And so I probably won't sell it. I think the other one is a 1963 Harmony H19 silhouette. I bought three of those last year and kept the best one. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there are guitars okay, you know, yeah. in my life. I, um, had, I had to ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I try not to get too attached to most of this stuff. You know, I sold a um, a really cool 1957 uh, silver tone branded Dan Electro U1 mm-hmm. um, that was really pristine copper finish. I got that in a trade with another client, and um, I loved it. I really loved it. It was so beautiful mm-hmm. and fun to play. But I sold it. Actually, sold it last week to a guy. And this is this is kind of where my love for the guitars just kind of like goes out the window. Um, I sold it to a guy who was going on tour. He was leaving for Texas the next day. And so that guitar, instead of being in my closet, mm-hmm. is like living and breathing rock and roll now. Yeah. There's another one that had been under a bed in Hartwell in, a, in an abandoned trailer for 20 years. Oh, wow. It was a Harmony um, H72 electric guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got it from a guy in Hartwell. It's covered in mold. Mm-hmm. It had mold on the inside. Um, it was... Funky, 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 like gross. <laughs> and so I cleaned it up. I refretted it. I did a bunch of work to it. I named it Lurleen after Homer Simpson's no, um, nice. love affair with the country singer that tried to steal him away from Marge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I loved it. And uh, one day I was, my inventory was low. It was after I'd opened the shop and it was hanging on a wall. And um, Jackson Tennyson from Granville came in and he fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Like it was lo- his... It was just like love at first sight. Mm-hmm. And he had never seen one like it. He didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. He's like, this thing is amazing. It has this like great arm wear on the side from it being played so much. There's no finish on the back of the neck. I mean, it was really, 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 really played. I just, I always imagine like this like blues player or something in this like trailer 30 years ago in Hartwell in this 110 degree Georgia heat yeah. just out there like no shirt, just playing his guitar <laughs> as loud as he can get the amp, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and just playing for the lake or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe a cigarette in his mouth. Oh, yeah, maybe three. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and just uh, whatever, life happened, and he put it under the bed before he went to jail or something mm-hmm. like that and sat under that bed for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always, like, this kind of forensic kind of part of my job where I'm like, where is this guitar been how did it get these marks how do I fix this or how do I what what should I do to preserve it but like what's what's the roadmap what's the story that this guitar tells through its damage or through its you know um, play wear or whatever but Mm so that guitar is now living and breathing rock and roll Mm -hmm. with a real live rock and roll band and Jackson is the perfect owner for it so Mm -hmm. I'm really happy that he has it. And it's kind of funny because he bought it. He was like, I need a backup because I'm afraid the headstock on my Les Paul is going to break off. And so he bought, he bought Lurleen on a, um, <laughs> on a Friday 
and he brought his last pollen on Monday, and he's like, dude, the headstock broke off. <gasps> so what? it was really cool, you know, wow. and Jackson's, Jackson's great. So yeah. it was, um, it w- it's good for me to, like, see their promo stuff and their press stuff and their pictures on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And there's Lurleen on stage mm-hmm. rocking Clemson or, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's cool. So yeah. there, is, there is kind of a, a silver lining to mm-hmm. my love for the guitars that I take in and that I restore to mm-hmm. see them, you know, go on the road and, and go not just back into a closet or sit into a, in a guitar shop to actually play music, which is what they're meant for. It sounds like that was the fate thing that, that happened and that, yeah. yeah, oh my gosh. Assuming like that you only deal with vintage guitars, why focus on vintage guitars and not include like new guitars? I mean, you've already talked about so much history involved. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'll just let you answer. <laughs> <laughs> So as far as repair, I repair any guitars. You know, I, mm-hmm. I do setups and um, restorations and repair on mm-hmm. on anything. I focus on selling vintage guitars because in our area, that was something that I didn't see much of. My passion is for vintage guitars. And there are two new guitar stores here in town. So in in my idea to create this shop and kind of build it over the next 10 years... I wanted to start with that. And, you know, being in a college town, vintage is a very fluid kind of idea mm-hmm. or, or concept. I have clients like Wim Tapley, who was born the year I graduated high school. Yeah, cool. So his concept of, or not him, not you specifically, Wim, <laughs> um, but the concept of vintage in a college town can be very different because someone who is a sophomore you know, at UGA can come into a guitar shop and see a reissued 1996 Dan Electro. And that's a vintage guitar to them. Mm -hmm. You know, it was made well before they were born. And so it is something that they've never seen before. Now, in the industry, vintage is 25 years Mm -hmm. is before it's considered vintage. And gosh, 25 years ago, now that we're, we're past, I guess, the year 2000, Mm -hmm. 25 years ago just doesn't seem like that long ago, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I created the shop kind of to have this vintage vibe because all of the guitars, vintage in our minds, kind of the idea that stuck in, especially people my age, I'm 39, of vintage is the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s. And that is when the big guitar boom happened. You know, basically from the birth of the electric guitar, they just started being mass produced. And the Harmony Factory at one time in the mid 60s was producing a thousand instruments a day wow. you know and their major competitor K was right behind them and so companies like that Dan Electro K Harmony they also supplied catalogs like Sears and or you know you'll see brands like Silvertone and that's where those guitars came from the factories were actually Dan Electro and uh, Harmony and K and so there were so many guitars produced around that time so that's primarily what I see and what come to me. Um, newer guitars seem to need less, well, not always, but mm-hmm. n- newer guitars need less major restoration. And so the concept behind the shop is kind of, I have like vintage things and, you know, like the coffee table is in my, in my logo is kind of like mm-hmm. this, this googie guitar pick su- uh, symbol, you know. And that's because most of the guitars that I have are mm-hmm. of that era. And that whole aesthetic that's associated with the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. I wanted to kind of capture that with the shop. I think you did a great job of that. Thanks, yeah. What's been the most difficult or hardest guitar that you've ever had to repair? Hmm. (laughs) I don't know. It's it's a very frustrating job at times. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not always easy. Every job is different. That's kind of one of the things that I like about it Mm -hmm. is um, the way the guitar has broken or whatever issue you're having can be different between four of the same model, the same break. You know, sometimes a Les Paul headstock break will have a lot of a lot of grain and glue surface, and sometimes it's just a, a complete decapitation. And so it's really hard to say what the most difficult repair is. It's usually finish repairs that are very difficult, matching a 60-year-old finish, with new finish or touching it up, touching up a sunburst, mm-hmm. matching a red, things like that can be very difficult. But all in all, it's all really hard. 
<laughs> yeah, so it sounds like it. Just from when you told me the process, like that's so many steps, and I'm sure it it's is. different depending on the kind of guitar, the make, the model, how damaged it is versus how how much it's not. Right. Just a lot of factors. Yeah. It's not easy for young starting musicians to actually be able to afford good instruments mm. a lot of times, and all the accessories that are needed. What is the bare minimum that you would advise a young struggling musician who's just starting out to focus on in addition to their guitar? What are the most common mistakes you see from that point of view that are due to inexperience or bad advice? So there is an entire industry built around gear and kind of modifying your sound. If you're young and struggling, all you need is a guitar and an amp Mm -hmm. and a volume knob and and to play and practice when you buy a guitar even if it's brand new it needs to be set up a lot of times people will bring me a guitar and they're like i've had this guitar for years and it's just always been difficult to play and so people tend to buy a guitar and kind of expect it to be perfect right and they've Mm -hmm. already made the investment so it's hard to say like okay i bought this guitar it's got strings on it it plays kind of difficult but Mm -hmm. it's, it's really cool i really love it and then I'll set it up. I'll do the work to get the get the action right, to get the radius right, to um, to just freshen it up and make it more playable. And they're always like, oh, my God, I should have done this so long ago when I first got it. So mm-hmm. if you're young and you're just starting out and you, you have a guitar, get it set up, spend mm-hmm. the money, you know, get it set up by somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, I wouldn't take it to a, you know, just a big box repair shop or something like that, I would take it to a luthier and have it set up correctly. And yeah, I wouldn't focus too much on buying stuff. Focus on the music, focus on what you can control, you know, and if you have, if you have music in your heart, you know, and the willingness to put the time into practice, you can be, you can be a great musician. Um, A lot of times these days, people get kind of caught up in the, in the commerce of it. They, Mm -hmm. they get a guitar and then they got to get a distortion pedal and then they got to get a looper and then they Mm got to get a reverb pedal then they got to buy a pedal board so it becomes this kind of like this thing that that grows the 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 idea of of getting to where they want to get is based on how much they can afford to buy Mm -hmm. more gear and um it's free to sit down and play your guitar you just sit down and play your practice the youtube videos are free for learning Mm -hmm. um and um one of my dad's good friends years ago uh who just recently passed away tom bresh um, I asked him one day if he would give me guitar lessons mm-hmm. and he said, he said, son, what the hell do you want me to give you lessons for? You can watch Danny Gatton teach you anything you've ever wanted to learn on his, on his telecaster on YouTube. <laughs> and so, you know, you can, you can just sit down and play and learn. And the resources these days are so accessible, you know, mm-hmm. um, you don't have to buy tab books and you don't have to like stop the record or stop the the tape player and rewind to the solo and learn Mm -hmm. each note note for note you can you can get online and and you can see every note tabbed out and um so yeah i that's that's kind of what i always tell people like you don't really need anything except for your guitar and Mm -hmm. and that's it um once you're good though it's important to start recording your stuff and making notes of your the lyrics you come up with and the melodies that you that you come up with out mm-hmm. of your your own heart, you know, because you'll come back a week later and you're like, oh shit, how did I play that? You mm-hmm. know, and so, you know, recording things on your phone is a good way to do it. So yeah, it's very accessible. It's very inexpensive if you if you set your goals in an achievable kind of light. Another thing that I've been so impressed with in Athens is the number of recording outlets there are you know Mm -hmm. there's some big major studios here but then there's also it seems like you know everyone's friend has a a small recording setup in their house and Mm -hmm. can help you record a demo or there's like the mid-level studios that are like you know gift horse or uh, we bought a zoo so yeah Athens is a really good town where you can come here as a young musician and you can slowly be influenced by the people around you to play to get out to make music and people that'll want to play on your on your tracks with you and help you out, and then you can record your first songs at your friend's house, and then mm-hmm. take it to to Tommy, and he can help you record a better version of it and get more musicians together. Yeah, so start slow. So I, I guess this can kind of transition into this other question, but can you tell me about your YouTube channel, Classic City Limits? 
what was the inspiration behind starting this channel and where did the idea come from and how did you go about asking people to come on on episodes? Yeah, so Classic City Limits, for me, it's like my pet project. It's my way of kind of giving my clients and the, and the people who come to the shop and the people who I do repair for kind of a, an online venue for playing a song. And it's very simple, you know. And the idea came from when I was traveling, I always loved seeing street musicians. Mm -hmm. And I would always pull out my phone or my camera and, and record it if I could. And then I would have this song on my hard drive or on my computer that I could never find again mm -hmm. and or look up the musician. I could never know who it was, but I had this song. And it was really cool because it was like I've got files on my computer from uh, there's this one that's really memorable. And it was a there was a band recording in Portland and they mm -hmm. had uh, Portland, Oregon, and they had speakers outside so you could hear them. And it was this weird ambient music and this woman singing and um that's probably 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and I still, I'll still pull it up every now and then and just be like, who is this person? You yeah. know? But then I also, um, Alan Lomax in the 30s was given a grant by the Library of Congress to kind of go around and do field recordings and kind of capture all this music that was happen happening in the country. And so if you go on the Library of Congress website, you can now access all of this, this music. It's free, and there's so much of it. It's just, you know... Um, prison work camp songs and mm -hmm. Appalachian music and, and, and folk singers and just everywhere all over the country. And so this kind of idea of preservation is always in my head, you know. And um, so it's so cool. What I wanted to do was bring people in, have them record a song, and put it on a YouTube channel. And, you know, like once it's on the Internet, it's there forever. So <laughs> I have my YouTube channel, and I love the idea of someone coming in and recording this year mm -hmm. and then in 10 years looking back and like seeing that that I don't know that someone has blown up or that someone has mm -hmm. gotten hugely famous I, I just think that that would be so cool but also it's, it's cool just to like say like this is Athens music right now mm -hmm. in 2022 post pandemic this is it and it's very simple I originally tried to set up a um, like a nice camera, a video camera, mm -hmm. and had some recording software. And um, I realized that my phone was better mm -hmm. somehow. So I record it with my phone. I have a little stand that has a ring light. Mm -hmm. um, I invite the musicians in. I do it at 10 o'clock in the morning. And they have an hour before the shop opens to record one song. They can do it as many times as they want. And it also gives me kind of some time to afterward. Um, it's so great because everybody will stay and talk for a few minutes after we record. I'll let them listen to it over the shop speakers. And it's great because I get some one-on-one -on -one time to talk about them and their music. And yeah, I just keep it simple. It's um, in a town like Athens where music production is so well-regarded and recording is, is so accessible. Mm -hmm. I knew that I either needed to record it and send it to someone to make amazing or just keep it as lo-fi as it was. And um, and so I, I don't do any editing to the video or the sound. I just put the video together. I release one every Sunday night at 8 o'clock. So, yeah, it's just kind of like this, this pet project. And like I said, the shop that I'm in, the space that I'm in, continues to provide everything that I need, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that circle that you see is just a blocked off doorway that's in my wood shop. So I move some things around, I set up the camera, and we go. I'll link his YouTube channel in the little description below for anybody who's interested in checking it out. I highly recommend it. It's really cool. Thank you. I might have binged it last night, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so when I came into your shop yesterday, you mentioned that you have a lot of projects going on. Apart from Classic City Limits, would you like to talk about those? Yeah. So I... I can't be satisfied. You know, I'm always like <laughs> thinking about the next, the next step, you know, in opening this shop and giving it this like big pretentious name, classic city vintage guitars, mm -hmm. you know, I see that as kind of a continual growth. There's no retirement plan for craftsmen. Whenever your eyes give out and your hands start shaking, you've got to like think about what you're going to do next. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to kind of think about the long term. I want to build a shop that is a reputable guitar repair shop and a reputable source for high quality and fully functional studio and stage ready vintage guitars and gear. And so 
that's kind of the first step of classic city vintage guitars. I want it to be as Athens grows, which we moved here in 2020, and this whole town just seems to be under this rejuvenation or facelift. Like there's just mm-hmm. construction everywhere. And so it seems to be growing, and I'm hoping that my shop can grow with the town. So that's kind of the first thing for me is the shop is my baby, and mm-hmm. I want to see it grow, and I want to see it do well, and you know, I want to water it and, and watch it flower. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started the shop in September. I've done everything myself. My wife helps. She has a full-time job, though, so she's mm-hmm. very behind the scenes. She help, helps with the website. She helps with bookkeeping, things like that. All of the hands-on things I have done so I just hired some help. We have TK, who is he's a bartender at the 40-watt. Uh, he was also a bartender at Caledonia. He plays guitar in McQueen. He has been super cool and, and just super great to deal with. He's the perfect uh, you know kind of partner in this job. We've been working together. I've been slowly teaching him how to do repair. And so that's kind of the second step for me, is having some help. And it's amazing for me to go, go into the shop now and, like, I don't have to do callbacks with the phone in one hand while I'm sweeping with the other and mm-hmm. worrying about what guitars I have to get out today or what I promised for Monday. Mm-hmm. Or so that's been just an immense help. And I'm slowly kind of teaching him how to do setups. So in the next year, I want to have TK able to do setups exactly how I do setups. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very particular about my work. And he's very good at following kind of my lead on things. He pays attention. So it, he's been great to work with. I have uh, Classic City Limits. I sell guitar pickups that are Classic City Vintage pickups that are made by a good friend in Indiana. We worked at the guitar factory that I worked for in Northern California. He was the production manager. And he makes pickups now in Indiana. He moved back to his hometown. But he builds pickups for OEM, and he builds them for guitar builders. He doesn't sell them online or sell them as a company. But he makes guitar pickups for some of the really well-known smaller makers like mm-hmm. uh, J.W. Black and Ronin Guitars. You can find some articles of Bill Frizzell, the, the really well-known jazz guitar player, just raving about these pickups. So I had him make those for the shop. I've also collaborated with my friend Hogan Heim, who is a UGA grad who's now getting his master's in Vanderbilt. And he started making pickups under Purple Petals. And we decided to do a collaboration and sell locally branded guitar pedals. So we have a, a fuzz that is the Georgia Peach Fuzz. Oh, cool. We have a boost pedal that's the Bulldog Boost. And we have an overdrive pedal, which is the Highway 316 Overdrive. And so that's been a fun collaboration. I'm also expanding the upstairs is a big, you know, huge misuse of <laughs> 400 square feet right now where I'm just storing guitars that need to be worked on. And so that's going to be the acoustic guitar gallery mm-hmm. coming in the next few months. Awesome. Uh, my good friend Henry Toland is coming back from California soon, and we're going to kind of go through and, and build a big two-wall rack for that upstairs room. I'm toying with the idea of doing a podcast, uh, which is a video podcast, and I want to talk about uh, vintage guitar culture, collecting, and common issues with certain models, what to look out for when you're buying certain models of vintage guitar, sharing stories about buying guitars, selling guitars, just all things kind of on that side of it. There are some great podcasts that deal with, that are luthier-based podcasts that Mm -hmm. talk about guitar repair or uh, secrets, tips, and methods. So I don't really want to go that angle, and I also don't really want to talk about one thing specifically. I want to talk about the culture, because I think that's important. And I also build custom guitars under Keelcraft Guitars. Mm -hmm. I have a whole whole nother Instagram, which is basically my repair gallery from the last 10 years of, except for when I've been extremely busy, like the last three years, mm-hmm. just kind of churning out guitar repair. I used to take pictures of every guitar I finished um, oh, wow. of doing repairs, but then I also post custom builds there. I just finished a custom build for a young cat named Henry Cash that's in a band called Starcrawler in LA. And they're, you know, they do world tours and things like that. But I built a, a mashup of two different Silvertone models, one made by Harmony and one made by Kay in the mid-60s. I'm hoping to continue building guitars. In the long term, I'm hoping to step back from the labor side of the shop Mm -hmm. and be more management-oriented and keeping the shop. I'd really like to start a school to teach guitar repair and road teching 
I think Athens is a great place to have something like that. I'd like to, however I can, use the resources here that are available and kind of pool them. One thing that I think I've always been good at and always been very mindful of is my ability to connect people and bring mm-hmm. them together and and kind of tie our themes together so that we can work together. Sounds like you've got a lot of really cool projects and, and things that you want to do in the future, too. That's awesome. Yeah, I always say, you know, if you do what you love, you never stop working a day in your life. <laughs> That's my plan. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Going back to guitar repair, the process of it, I'm curious, what are essential tools or elements you must have in order to repair a guitar? It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and the tools are very specialized. It depends on what you're doing. In my shop, I have a lot of specialty tools that come from different luthier tool companies. I've got two different band saws. I've got a thickness sander, a spindle sander, and those are all more towards the woodworking side of it. But then I also have... I've probably got a hundred screwdrivers in the shop mm-hmm. because every I need two of everything or maybe three of everything in case I lose it. You know, um, I've got two different benches, so I like to keep. I don't like to walk back and forth, you know, between mm-hmm. everything. So I like to keep both benches kind of stocked with tools. You need screwdrivers and nut drivers and truss rod adjustment tools. Basically, if you sit down and you have either an electric or an acoustic guitar in your lap, and you're like, okay, what do I need? to take this apart you need all of those tools and if you need to do um, like major work like fret work then you need files and you need crowning files and you need you know sanding blocks and radius or radius blocks and Mm -hmm. you know you need to be able to re-slot the nut at the at the top you know and so yeah it's a lot a Mm -hmm. lot of tools it's not just having the tools it's knowing how to use them correctly so Mm -hmm. it is a very specialized proficiency but having the right tools is definitely the first step because if you just grab your granddad's old bastard file and start grinding away at the side of your fingerboard, you're probably not going to do what you meant to. Oops. <laughs> I feel like that seems like a very specific example that maybe you ran into. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I, have, I have a memory. Can you tell me, like, what's an example or like a story of like somebody bringing something in and they try to do it themselves? What was the worst condition that somebody brought something in? That they had worked on? Yeah, that they worked on themselves. I don't want to talk about that. Oh, you don't? Okay. (laughs) You don't have to. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that happens. um, That happens pretty regularly. Okay. You know, depending on how bad they've, how badly they messed up their guitar. Right. Most of the time I commend them on trying. Okay. Yeah. Because whatever you're doing, like. It's nice to feel like it's in your own hands. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to like chastise someone for right, attempting to, to do something because mm-hmm. it's like, how does that guy do it better than me? That's how I got into the work. And so there's a lot of guys that try to do their own work and then they bring mm-hmm. it to me and they're like, hey man, I tried. And I'm like, good. And most of the time I'll fix it for them and show them what I did so that they at least have that one part down the next time. But yeah, that happens quite often. You know, okay. somebody will try to work on something and just not not get it right. So yeah, people do try to work on their stuff and yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Just tread lightly. I gave a class last week at Nucci Space for mm-hmm. Camp Amped. There are things that you should be able to do yourself. Mm-hmm. And there are things that you should know about your guitar going into it that aren't widely taught as mm-hmm. you're getting into guitar. And so I, I gave a class on just how to restring your guitar. Mm-hmm. And everybody should be able to do that. That's very simple. How to restring, clean your fingerboard. Setup maybe is a little bit more advanced for some players, but just being able to put new strings on, and there are correct ways to wind the the tuning pegs, things Mm -hmm. like that, things you should look out for, things that you should and shouldn't clean your guitar with. So Mm -hmm. I kind of went over all of those things. And um, I wish I was there for that. <laughs> I've got, I, I made some, um, printed out some pamphlets. So I can oh, bring you one. That would be great. But yeah. yeah, I think it's, you know, it's great to like, you know, you should feel comfortable with your instrument. And mm-hmm. so it's nice to kind of hand people that key at an early age and say like, these are the things that you should be able to do and don't be afraid to try. And here's my advice and here's how I do it. And so I'm always happy to show people how to, how to do things like that, restring their guitar. There is a process like everything else and there is a correct way and a way that um, is maybe less correct. Thank you for sharing that, that's really cool. As a novice guitar player, I'm curious, how often should you replace your guitar strings? I know it depends on how frequently you play, but Mm -hmm. what are signs it's time to switch them out? 
they'll start to get rusted okay. looking or kind of like corroded looking uh, after a long time. It also depends on the pH balance in your body. Okay. Um, a lot of players who have kind of more acidic sweat mm -hmm. will go through strings very quickly. That's really interesting. Um, so if you're playing electric guitar and you notice that your hardware is starting to rust, your screws are rusting everywhere you touch the guitar seems mm -hmm. to be rusting, then you probably have more acidic sweat. Um, and that can be influenced by a lot of things. It's different person to person. It can be influenced by diet. Musicians don't typically uh, are the most healthy eaters, especially right. if they're touring. And so I say every three to six months. Strings will also kind of lose their crisp sound and sound, they call it dead strings. So if you, if you notice your strings sound dead or look gross, just change them. Strings are like, you know, seven bucks at most. I also recommend, um, I always kind of, I'm never a big proponent of like expensive strings. There's a lot of like hand wound, custom made strings in the market today. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you should be able to change regularly, you mm -hmm. know, and you shouldn't like leave these $20 strings on because like, oh man, 20 bucks for strings. I only stock Diodario strings in my shop. I really like Diodario strings. They're inexpensive, they're high quality. But there are a lot of different string makers out there. I always kind of say, don't buy the cheapest ones, but buy the cheapest ones with the best quality. Change them when you need to. What are types of guitars that you have in the shop now? We kind of talked about it throughout the episode, sure. but if you could go into that, that would be cool. Yeah. Right now, it's pretty, it's pretty fluid as far as the guitars go. I just recently started selling online, so I'm selling faster right mm -hmm. now. I try to stock guitars under $2,000, okay. I think in a college town and a town heavily populated by musicians, things should be affordable. I don't see any reason to stock guitars that aren't going to sell. I, um, I can't afford the insurance on having 10, $10,000 guitars in the right. shop or vintage Les Pauls or Stratocasters. So a lot of times when people come in, they're kind of underwhelmed. They're like, well, I thought this is some big guitar, you know, vintage guitar <laughs> shop. And I hope to get there. You know, I hope in the next 10 years to have more expensive inventory. But starting out, I just endeavor to have guitars that are from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s that are affordable to college students and musicians and players here in town. It's a local shop. Now that I'm selling online, the stuff that I sell is kind of the more esoteric stuff. I don't really stock things that you would find at a big box store. And also, guitars like Fender Telecasters and Stratocasters and a Les Paul, if somebody kind of wants one of those, you can go on Reverb.com or online or to a big box store, and you can find exactly what you want. You can find that black Stratocaster, that whatever. You can find exactly what you want. For what I have, it's very difficult to find a mint condition 1968 Harmony H72, which they've just reissued, but I've got one in the shop right now that looks like it just came out of the box. It's set up. It plays like a dream. And so that's kind of the things that I endeavor to have, the, the weird stuff that you would have trouble finding anywhere else. But not only that, I have the weird stuff, but it is ready to go. It's mm -hmm. ready to go on tour. It's ready to take to the studio. I've been through every piece of gear in the shop. If I haven't, if it's a pedal or an amp, most of the time I send that to one of the local pedal or amp repair people that I work with. And so, yeah, I, you know, I like having the weird stuff. I like people to come in and say, what is that? Never seen one of those before. Oh my God, I've never seen one of these in person. Rather than just being like, oh wow, you have six Telecasters mm -hmm. in different colors because so does everyone else. What's the coolest guitar someone's brought in to you that you've repaired or sold? Hmm, I get a lot of really cool guitars. Oh, I, I mean, bet. So many cool guitars. I can talk about one that I just finished, though. Okay. Um, there's a local historian, and he was a, a UGA professor for a long time. He's mm -hmm. a, he's, he won a Grammy a few years back. I have a guitar that was bought by a man named Art Rosenbaum mm -hmm. in 1953. And he also did similar like field recordings. And as a historian in North Georgia, he recorded a lot of North Georgian Appalachian music in the you know 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so I have this 1953 Gibson Southern Jumbo acoustic guitar that it, I just posted on my Instagram last mm -hmm. night. But it, um, it's been played so much. I mean, it's, it's got 
the wear around the pick guard is such that it's it's created a, a plateau where the pick guard is because the wood has worn away so much around it. And the frets were completely gone and the divots in the fingerboard were so deep that you know there would have been no way for me to sand the, the divots out of it. I mean, the guitars for me that are the most interesting are the ones that have really lived and really played music. I see a lot of beautifully pristine vintage guitars being sold and it's cool that like somebody was able to keep that under the bed for 50 years but that guitar hasn't lived it hasn't inspired it hasn't hasn't brought as much joy or or sorrow as the ones that have been played and passed around and and the one that sat in the corner of your grandfather's living room your Mm -hmm. whole life and he played it every night when he got off work Mm -hmm. those are the ones that are really cool to me so I just finished Arts. Um, he's going to pick it up next week. That's a really cool one that I really enjoyed working on and really felt inspired to be able to work on it. Arts in his 80s now. And I've done a lot of really cool projects for different players in California and here. And uh, the one that I love the most is the one that I finish last. You mm-hmm. know, I, I really enjoy each guitar. But I think the family guitars, the ones that are like one owner guitars that a guy has played his entire life, those mm-hmm. are the most interesting for me. It kind of reminds me when you talked about like the history of when you're repairing a damaged part, you're like, what what happened before sure. this point? I feel yeah. like you get to see that with a family guitar because yeah. it's lived so long. Mm-hmm. It, it's really cool to talk about quote like an inanimate object in a sense that it's living and breathing and I feel like you've explained it like that Mm -hmm. so can we talk about how you came up with the logo for your store Mm -hmm. because you told me a little bit in the shop yesterday it's a really cool story so I'd love everybody else to hear it as well so when I went to school I went to school and I was never confident in my ability to actually get a job as an artist and when I got into this work building guitars was my goal. Mm -hmm. Repair became the breadwinner. It became the way of making money doing what I love, but I always wanted to be a guitar builder Mm -hmm. um, because I've always loved art and building guitars was kind of my my medium that I kind of gravitated towards. And so um, the whole process of learning how a guitar is put together gave me the knowledge that it required to repair guitars. Mm-hmm. And so that's another reason I am where I am. I chose to be an art minor. Mm-hmm. And so I've always really loved design and and just kind of tying things together. When it came time to talk about, you know, having a sign for the shop, my wife and I were talking about it and we were at a really great Mexican restaurant in Athens that no one can pronounce the name of, mm-hmm. um, which we love. We'd had a couple margaritas and She's like, well, what would you want to do for your sign, for your logo? And I was like, oh, my God, I, I, I have it. You know, it's mm-hmm. in my head. So she pulled out a piece of paper, and I drew it mm-hmm. really quickly. And we decided it was great, you know, mm-hmm. of course. And um, we went home, and she kind of rendered it online because I, I don't computer. Um, <laughs> and she rendered it for me, and I had made a new friend. I was out riding my motorcycle, and I'd been looking for a Volvo station wagon, And I saw one under a tree Mm -hmm. and went back the next week and knocked on the door and asked the lady if she would sell this Volvo station wagon. Mm -hmm. She said, um, she said, if you love it, you can have it. And so I had it towed to the shop and had Mm -hmm. it worked on. And anyway, we became friends. Mm -hmm. And this is Ann Richmond Boston, who was the singer of the Swimming Pool Cues, which are a big local North Georgia band. So she had just retired from her job as a graphic designer. And so I asked her if she would be willing to help me get everything together Mm -hmm. so um, we sent her that off of that she put together the logo for the business cards the t-shirts the stickers and the sign Mm -hmm. and so I got all that together and at the end of it I decided I don't really want to sign I like having just a guitar in the window and just like this totally obscure facade and when you walk in then it hits you that Mm -hmm. you know like you're in this crazy guitar shop and so she helped me with that she's been great and then the logo for Classic City Limits, of course, is a direct cop of Austin City Limits logo. I made that by myself in Microsoft Paint. Nice. Um, <laughs> and then similarly, the podcast logo that I've been working on is Only Frets, and mm-hmm. I'm still in the uh, OnlyFans nice. logo. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it just kind of, it's one of those things. I, I love having that hands-on kind of feel of, of concepts and the visualizations that are behind 
an entity, you know. Mm -hmm. So when I was in college and taking graphic design classes, I was preemptively designing logos for guitars and guitar companies and things like that. And mm -hmm. So it's really weird how it came full circle. And here I am. I needed to be able to run a business and I happened to have a business communications degree mm -hmm. and I needed some logos and I happened to have background in art. So it's really great. It's just another kind of example of all of those components of myself kind of coming together and helping in this whole endeavor. I like to hear even more of, of your history and your process in your life. So this has just been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. And I'm really honored that I got to hear your story. You're such a cool guy. So this was really <laughs> fun. I can't wait for everybody who's like super into guitars or a guitar nerd or whatever to hear this and or, or just a musician or somebody who just really appreciates the craft of what you do because yeah. what you do is so unique and you have a lot of talent. I'm so glad we got to talk about it. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate Yay. that. Yeah. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning into this week's episode. And stay tuned for next week's episode, and we'll, we'll see you soon. So thank you so much.